It's the Bits and Pieces Podcast, your monthly roundup of topical tidbits to put the bigger picture together. Hello and welcome to the March edition of the Bits and Pieces Podcast. I'm Fiona from the Indie Live podcast team. It's been another busy month. We'll be bringing you some flavour from this month's activism, which has included the All Under One Banner March in Paisley and the Stand Up Against Racism uh, March and Demo in Glasgow. And of course, the war in Ukraine is still going as we're recording, so we will be touching on that as well. We'll be dropping in on the International Women's Day debate in Holyrood for some inspiration and loads of other goodies as well. So hope you enjoy it. Remember to subscribe to our channel and please do share with anybody you think would enjoy this podcast. The 5th of March saw the first of the All Under One Banner programme of marches take place in Paisley in a beautiful, crisp, sunny afternoon. We'll be covering some of the speakers. We don't normally cover just the introduction speech, but I thought this one was quite good. So this is Robert from All Under One Banner. This year, this demonstration, it's not the first demonstration we've had this year. We had one in Glasgow about a month or so ago about the whole cost of living crisis. We've decided to theme up the demonstrations today. And today's demonstration is obviously about the issue of poverty. But uh, we couldn't let the war in Ukraine go by without mentioning it couldn't let that event uh, disappear into the background. All Under One Banner, without reservation, condemns uh, the invasion of Ukraine by the Russian government and the Russian military, without, without reservation, and we call on them to withdraw their troops. We support the right of uh, Ukraine to self-determination, as we do support the right for Scotland to have its own government and its own, uh, its own country. We also, I think, have got to give a shout out to the Solidarity Movement in Russia, the brave people who are standing up to Putin in Russia, the anti-war movement in Russia. Quite a number of these have been arrested, but they're the brave people here, uh, as well as the ones that are resisting the Russians. So, uh, shout out to the, uh, to the Russian anti-war movement. I think this war has highlighted a number of things, not least the threat of nuclear war. And never let's forget that Scotland is on the front line here. And one of the things we want to get, do is get rid of nuclear weapons out of Scotland. That's one of the things uh, independence is about, uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons out of Scotland and getting rid of nu- nuclear weapons altogether. We also, as a country, welcome refugees to this country. We want to see the, the refugees coming, wherever they're coming from, not just from Ukraine, but from Afghanistan, everybody that's fleeing war and poverty and oppression. That's what we're about as well as a, as a country. Uh, re- refugees coming. Final point before I introduce my next speaker. This demonstration is about poverty. Paisley is a symbolic area in Scotland. Two of the poorest regions in the, in the country are in uh, Paisley, right in this, this constituency here. Uh, we should remember that. And let's be clear, this war that's taking place will ramp up uh, the, the shares and the profits of the oil companies, of the armaments companies, And it will mean that the cost of that will be put on ordinary people. So the energy prices will go up, poverty will become worse, and it's important that we make a stand in solidarity with people and fight against that. And that's one of the reasons why we're having this demonstration today about poverty. Because we want Scotland to be a country in which people are looked after. They're not derided, but people are taken care of uh, and supported. 
There's an estimated 2,000 or so people on the march in Paisley, accompanied by the S-Bikers, always one of my favourites, and constituency MSP George Adam also spoke at the rally. Here's his speech. Thank you for asking me to attend today's meeting and address this. You know, I'm Paisley's MSP. I was the first the parliamentary politician for the SNP uh, in Renfrewshire, and I take that extremely seriously because, you know, we've always spoke about positive Paisley. Paisley has its challenges, like many other places in Scotland, but it's mainly because these challenges are there because the union has failed Paisley and the union has failed Scotland. And I think that's one of the things we need to keep toiling everybody as we go out. I'll remind you of a story that I had during the first independence referendum where I was chapping doors in Fergusley Park to my right, to your left, where, where I chapped this one door where this young, young woman came to the door and she said to me, George, I'm voting for independence. And I said, well, wh why is it? Because I've got nothing to lose. Now, that's not the Scotland I want. I want people supporting independence because they can see the positive change we can make in their life. They can see the positive change in the world that Scotland and independent Scotland can make. And they can see that we can build that better tomorrow. Now, one of the things that constantly uh, I think about constantly, I was talking to my good friend Patricia uh, Gibson, and uh, MP and Kenny Gibson, MSP, when we were going round the march. I joined the SNP in 1987. That was a very good year. St Mun won the Scottish Cup and uh, I also joined the SNP. And at that point, it wasn't about elected office for me or for anyone else. It was purely about independence and building a better future for the people of Paisley. Because I could see, like now, Paisley was in the midst of a Tory UK government that had destroyed the infrastructure, destroyed the business, destroyed people's lives. Friends of mine left this great town to go and find work and jobs elsewhere. They moved all over to leave the town of Paisley to see make their, uh, their way in the world elsewhere. And that's wrong. And that's wrong because the union has failed us here. Because we in Paisley and in Scotland should be talking about that brighter tomorrow and how we're going to make people's lives better. It's about creating that positive vision of what independence will do for all of us. It's about us taking matters into our own hands and making these decisions. And I will never tire of ensuring that we... I started this and it was about my generation and ensuring that we never had another dominant Tory government. I got older, got married, had kids. It became about my kids, making a better future for them, making sure that my children didn't suffer the way that my generation had. And now, unfortunately, and I know you won't believe me, I'm a grandparent, uh, but uh, now I'm a grandparent and now I'm talking about my grandchildren's future because I don't want my grandchildren living in the current world. I want Scotland's voice to be one of the voices that the world listens to. I joined the SNP for independence and I was against having nuclear weapons in any shape or form. And an independent Scotland can tell the world that we want nothing to do with nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. I think when we look at the current world, the way things are, who would have thought we'd have been in a place where a European nation had been invaded by a Russian? Those of us of, I think we're called Generation X, will remember we grew up believing we were going to die in a nuclear Armageddon. 
And unfortunately, young people like my kids and my grandkids are now thinking that this is a possibility now. This is where an independent Scotland can be that same voice. That voice that will say, we believe in peace, we believe in discussion, we believe in supporting independent sovereign states to their right to be able to continue, and we believe in doing what's right. That is what an independent Scotland is all about to me. So yes, I will continue chatting doors. That's all we have to do is convince people to put that cross in that box. I'll continue campaigning here in Paisley. I'll continue selling and pitching that message of how we can be a better nation and how we can lead the world and show the world what a small country like Scotland can be and what we can give. And first and foremost, for me, it will always be about independence. Another speaker at All Under One Banner, Paisley, who I've not come across before, was Rory Anderson. And I thought he had quite a, a fresh and very authentic take on the consequences of poverty in Scotland. Uh, to introduce the next speaker, who is Rory Anderson, a Unison activist social and a, for Social Work Action Network. Cheers, thanks very much. It's great that everyone's here and I'm actually very proud that people have come out to Paisley to actually march around poverty. Um, when I grew up, I grew up in Johnson and I have seen over successive decades the amount of cuts to working class people over generations where the housing schemes have been broken, communities have been broken and I live in Paisley and the place that I live in has been broken and the families that I work with are continually pushed into poverty and now with this latest round of cuts that are coming round are going to f further that further that exploitation and oppression for people that live in Scotland. And it's so sad to see families who end up coming to me because they're poor, not because of their own choices, not because of the situation they've got themselves into, but because of political choices by a political class who actually want to put wars and their own, own political priorities in front of the people who need money to survive. And these are political choices. We need to be aware that they're political choices because we can afford it. And we can actually have a resistance to that. And it's so wonderful for people to come out and actually do something against it. Because we've got our own political choice, which is actually to stand and fight for independence. It's to get out in the streets, it's to march, it's to campaign for everyone to come out in solidarity with the people of Ukraine and Russia. To actually make a voice heard so we can change the polit political course in Scotland. And I would say to everyone here, is actually continue fighting. Go in your streets tomorrow for the Stop the War campaign. Get, go in your streets and fight for independence further because today the choices we make can actually make a difference. What we do matters. So let's make a change now. And let's from today fight for an independent Scotland that's actually going to take people away from poverty rather than further instill it from the Westminster rule. I think today we have to understand that it's not just about Scotland becoming independent. Actually, I think we have to fight for politics now that will change the course of what independence looks like. That means fighting racism, it means fighting against poverty, and it means fighting against a political class who could come into power in Scotland. Let's not be aware of that and actually change the course of independence and put our politics in place. I'm going to keep it short and sweet because I quite like the sun, and it's a, it's a rare time you get sun in Paisley. So everyone have a good day, but from tomorrow, from today, and from next week, go out, fight. Fight for independence and fight for solidarity of the working class around the world. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. 
protesting against poverty was one of the themes of the All Under One Banner March and the same theme was carried forward into some of the Holyrood debates this month. Richard Lockhead led a debate on the so-called Shared Prosperity Fund, the brainchild of Westminster Tories whose idea of sharing prosperity appears to be diverting public money into the pockets of their friends. European funding has brought significant investment to the whole of Scotland, from the New Lanark World Heritage Centre to the LEADER programme, which of course delivers economic development in the rural areas, from the Modern Apprenticeship Scheme and projects like Murray's Income Maximisation programme in my own constituency that helps families in need. And the benefits of all these programmes and many others is tangible. But we have always been concerned that the UK Government's Shared Prosperity Fund, the promised replacement for EU funds following Brexit, would pale in comparison to the benefits of being in the EU. And after seeing the levelling up white paper and pre-launch guidance on this replacement fund, I know that our concerns are justified. It's clear that levelling up means losing out for Scotland. We're set to lose out financially, we're losing out in terms of our devolved authority, and crucially for our people, we're losing the benefits we enjoyed as members of the European Union. It's disappointing that the UK Government's intention is not to truly replace the EU structural funds, a promise they made back in 2017. Instead, they're using this fund to prop up the unambitious, underfunded and strategically vapid levelling up agenda. But in terms of the levelling up agenda, as the Institute for Fiscal Studies says, the UK Government has chosen its destination with no sense of how it plans to get there. Positioning the Shared Prosperity Fund as a main pillar of its levelling up agenda, the key aim of the fund, we are told, is to restore local pride. This broad focus doesn't compare with the value of tackling regional economic inequalities. With talks of uh, mayors and Renaissance Italy, levelling up bears little relevance to modern Scotland. Now, Scottish ministers, and Scottish ministers set out a clear plan for Scotland's share of the replacement funding back in 2020. Meanwhile, the UK Government haven't even set out Scottish investment priorities or informed us of our allocation. When we first learnt of this fund, we set out our asks. We expected to retain the same level of autonomy over allocations, governance and policy development. But UK ministers have so far failed to meet these expectations. We also set out a justifiable calculation of £183 million per year being devolved to the Scottish Government. This would provide a comparable replacement for the range of programmes available under the EU at that time. But can I just say that we have concluded as a Scottish Government from the UK autumn budget that Scotland's share is unlikely to be delivered, as promised. Our view is backed by the UK Treasury's committee, who suggests that the fund's maximum £1.5 billion annual budget equates to a 40% a 40 reduction compared with the amount the UK receives from the EU in the current programmes. Whilst calculated for the whole of the UK, this does confirm that Scotland will ultimately lose out big time. And despite confirming the overall quantum, ministers can't tell us whether this will cover all the various programmes under the EU. And the result is massive uncertainty. For instance, with the rural community-led uh, development work that's previously delivered through the LEADER programme, which many members are familiar with. And that brings much anxiety to those relying on investment uh, to function. In 2019, the UK budget stated that replacement funding would, and I quote, at a minimum match current levels for each nation. In 2021, Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government 
Robert Jenrick went further, stating in Parliament that, and I quote again, at least as much, if not more, funding will go to communities in Scotland than would have been received if we had stayed within the EU. But it is clear that the UK Government cannot honour these commitments, and again, Scotland is going to lose out. And through the UK Internal Market Act, the UK Government is encroaching into devolved areas. They are using Brexit, which Scotland did not vote for, to weaken devolution, which it did vote for. They are undermining Scotland's democratic voice. Scottish Ministers have consistently reminded the UK that we expect to be treated as a full and equal partner in the development of the Shared Prosperity Fund. We retain the belief that Scotland's share of the funding ought to be fully devolved. This will let us tailor it to the needs of Scotland and align with the ambitions set out in the National Strategy for Economic Transformation. By using the Internal Market Act to start spending in devolved areas directly with local governments, the UK Government are sidelining the Scottish Government and the wider ecosystem we have in Scotland of all our agencies and regional players. They are missing out on the breadth and depth of knowledge we have of our own economy, and Scotland is losing out on our devolved autonomy. It is absurd to claim that reducing the role of the Scottish Government and working directly with our local authorities is real devolution in action. Real devolution is what the people of Scotland voted for back in 1997, when they chose to establish this Parliament, a Parliament which on numerous occasions has agreed that the way in which the UK Government is implementing this policy is completely inconsistent with devolution and democracy in Scotland. I met with the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Levelling Up, Mr O'Brien, and Undersecretary of State for Scotland, Mr Stewart, last week. I emphasised the rightful authority of this Government in leading on this fund. They agreed to set out in writing how they see our role, offering some reassurance it will not be as peripheral advisers. I await that letter and to see whether these assurances have any truth. But as I draw to a conclusion, Deputy Presiding Officer, further, as the replacement funding moves further away from the positive aims of the EU funding we did have in Scotland, delivered by the Scottish Government for nearly five decades, we see that it is an example of how much Scotland will lose in the benefits of EU membership. EU funding that supported projects like the European Marine Energy Centre in Orkney, which contributed over £300 million to the UK economy and supported over 200 jobs. So I do call upon the, government, uh, the UK Government to um, listen to Scotland's uh, plea for the promises to be delivered, and I call on this Parliament to agree that the UK Shared Prosperity Fund falls far short of what we were promised and fails to offer the level of autonomy and influence the Scottish Government experienced under the EU. We must have a full and equal role in determining how these funds are used. We must have confirmation that Scotland's allocation of this fund matches our lost EU funding. And I move the motion in my name. One of our favourite accountants for explaining things in simple terms is Richard Murphy. He is a chartered accountant and a professor in political economy. Richard has turned his attention to the hikes in the energy prices, which I think are worrying us all just now. He has done an excellent Twitter thread explaining a lot of the issues here. Unfortunately, I couldn't find an audio clip of him speaking it, so I'm just going to have a bit of a rant here based on the information from his Twitter thread. Fuel bills are more than doubling, so why is that? It can't be the cost of delivery, billing, customer service, etc., because none of that's changed. Government and environmental schemes don't cost any more either. VAT is still at 5%, and casting our mind back to the web of lies around Brexit, not charging VAT on fuel bills was one of the promises. However, the Westminster administration has decided it's going to keep that, and because VAT is 5%, 
If the bills double, so does the amount of VAT the government gets. Richard points out that none of the cost of producing energy in the world has changed because of the war in Ukraine. In fact, right now there isn't even a shortage of energy in the world. Russia is still supplying oil and gas. So the only reason that our bills are going up is because oil and gas dealers expect that there's going to be a shortage in oil and gas, which hasn't happened yet. What we're seeing is panic buying of oil and gas that's still in the ground right now by countries terrified that they might run out. Richard explains that oil and gas is going up in price because oil companies, hedge funds and others are speculating in oil and gas in the expectation there will be shortages. Nobody actually thinks the stuff is going to cost more to produce. So looking at those elements that made up the cost of energy in 2021 and comparing it with forecast changes, distribution costs are the same. Billing and customer services are the same. Green and other levies are the same. The amount of VAT paid to the government has more than doubled. The distribution company profit has more than doubled. The cost of producing bought-in energy is the same. But on a typical annual energy bill, the profit for the energy company on bought-in energy was roughly £43. That figure has jumped to an eye-watering £1,717. It's not disappearing into a black hole. It goes to oil and gas companies, power generators, the countries and shareholders that own these, and of course, to the speculators who are currently making billions out of this. It's estimated that the price of UK energy is going to increase by 38 billion. Richard Murphy explains that is profiteering, exploitation on a quite staggering scale. Richard is quite clear. The people with the power in this situation are the oil companies. They are exploiting all of us to make exceptional profits. The Westminster administration is allowing this to happen and indeed is profiting itself through more than double receipts of VAT. The Westminster administration could impose windfall taxes. There is a straightforward case for a massive increase in taxes on energy companies right now, according to Richard Murphy, to be applied to their excess profits. But also, Ofgem, the UK government regulator, sets the UK electricity prices, and it prices that energy at the cost of the highest component, which is gas. Which means that even though most electricity is not generated from gas in the, in the UK, we pay for it as if it all is. So the price has skyrocketed, even though the cost of creating renewables, nuclear, hydro and coal power has not changed. The Westminster administration could change that regulation now, and bring down electricity prices overnight, as France, in fact, has done. Thank you so much to Richard Murphy for bringing some clarity to what has been a, a really bewildering question for many of us. Richard produces a blog, of course, called Tax Research UK, and I'll put the link to this particular blog post in the notes. So thanks for bearing with me through that rant. The conclusion I've reached is that we need to be an independent country as soon as possible so we can take control of our own energy policy and make the best choices for ourselves and the planet. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. The 19th of March was World Stand Up to Racism Day. There was a march and rally in Glasgow. The Indie Live podcasting team was there helping to live stream event. And if you'd like to see the entire proceedings, there is video available on Independence Live's YouTube channel. Our next episode of the Indie Live Jigsaw show will be on the 1st of April. 
we'll be looking at how Scotland can become the kind of open and welcoming country that we aspire to be. We have some speeches from the rally and we also have a guest, MSP Eleanor Whittam. One of the speeches that didn't quite make it into the Indie Jigsaw show was by Kadisha Mohammed from the STUC Black Workers Group. Kadisha made a great speech, I thought, with some advice for white leaders and black leaders on how to tackle racism in public sector organisations. This is a clip from that speech. Our message to those leaders is that it's not just about representation, it's beyond that. An ethnically diverse workforce brings cultural wealth. They bring cognitive diversity and perspectives to policies and practices. But I just want a a last message for our white leaders. Racism exists in our workplaces, in our places of learning, in our local communities. Call it what it is and reject it in all its forms. Now, for our black leaders, and I'm saying this very carefully, for our black leaders, because we have a few, please don't pull up the ladder behind you. Extend your hand, lift as you rise. Refuse to assimilate into the majority culture. It's not easy, as you may fear the implications of standing out and speaking up. Black leaders cannot simply be grafted onto processes that are either opposed to where they are coming from and what they bring, and to ignore who they are culturally, linguistically, religiously, is to absolutely deny them the right to be outstanding leaders um, and, and actually serve the communities that they are there for. Worse still, we then begin to look for perfect role models. We don't see them then. And so to finish, I guess everyone keeps asking, when do we return to some kind of normal after the pandemic? I guess we don't want normal because normal means for our colleagues of colour that they will continue to internalise racism. They will continue to experience disadvantage in the workplace and they will continue to be underrepresented, silenced and face concrete race ceilings. Thank you. I think you can hear in the reaction to that clip the energy and passion that the demonstration brought out. A lot of young people there, which is always great to see. One common theme that just about all the speakers brought out was the difference or the apparent difference between the response of the general public and Westminster administration to the Ukrainian refugees compared to those from Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen. And that point was also echoed by Kokab Stewart, MSP, at First Minister's Questions. Um, as the war on our continent continues, it was a, a source of at least some comfort uh, yesterday to hear of Scotland's plans for welcoming uh, Ukrainian refugees. Can I ask the First Minister what lessons the Scottish Government's current approach has taken from the experience of the Syrian resettlement scheme when each local authority settled families in their area? First Minister. As I said yesterday, we are drawing very heavily on the lessons uh, from the Syrian resettlement scheme, which I think most people agree uh, overall was a success, uh, but there will be uh, lessons uh, to learn about things that can be improved on as well. Uh, The uh, the reasons that we have put the super sponsor proposal uh, to the UK government, and of course we're still working on the agreement of the detail uh, of that, is is firstly to expedite uh, the ability of 
Ukrainian refugees to come here, but also to make sure we uh, can operate in a holistic way. We are working very closely right now with local authorities uh, and with other partners to make sure there is uh, a real local focus uh, to this, because I know all parts of Scotland are keen to give a warm welcome to those fleeing uh, the horrors in Ukraine. Um, and I think the approach we are taking uh, enables as many people as possible to do that. The repercussions and implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine continue to reverberate around Europe. In the latest Nordic Horizons discussion hosted by Leslie Riddick, she had guests from Denmark, Finland and Norway, and she asked each of the panellists in turn what differences they were noticing in their own country's politics and attitudes towards NATO and defence in general definitely worth watching the whole event. You can see that on Independence Live's YouTube channel. We will have a podcast version of the discussion under our guest podcast slot on the 8th of April. In this clip, Leslie poses her question to her Nordic guests, the first being Dr Hans Maritsen from the Danish Institute of International Studies. Where is your own country coming from in terms of its security policy, NATO and Russia? And has that changed in the last two weeks? A lot of things have, have changed here. The emotional winds also are blowing among people with war in, in, in our neighborhood or, or next neighborhood. In Danish politics, we can see that politicians, they have just decided about new defense spending. So now we should spend the 2% on, of GDP, not this year, but from uh, 25, I think. And uh, a, a second thing is, the stationing of U.S. soldiers on Danish territory, also in peacetime. We had a decision from 1952 where the, uh, the Danish politicians uh, said no to such a proposal, but now this has changed. So now, now we can have American soldiers, equipment, airplanes, and so on uh, on Danish, uh, Danish territory in peacetime. So that's also... Uh, a new thing. And 1st of June, it has just been, uh, was announced that we are going to have votes on, on our defense opt-out. We have, a, as you may know, we have a defense opt-out from, from the EU. If, we, if this should be changed, we have to vote up about it again, and that will take place on 1st of June. So, so you can see the politicians have a, a sense of how the wind is blowing. A lot of things have been uh, decided here. In, in Copenhagen. I mean, Denmark is a member of NATO. Yes, from the beginning, from 1949. Today, you can see the opposite. People, people uh, are very fond of NATO and very few people would like to, to leave NATO. So, Okay, um, right. Let's speak to Eva Neumann uh, next uh, from Norway. Eva, can you give us Norway's position on security? Russia, you have a land border. And how that's changed, perceptions have changed in the last two weeks. It has indeed. Uh, Norway is a NATO member from the very beginning, like Denmark, uh, but we voted no to the EU twice. So we're not a member of the EU, but we're a member of the European Economic Area. This makes Norway sort of in betwixt and between in terms of, of security policy. What has happened over the last few days is that, or the last few weeks, is that we are following Denmark, basically. So for example, we, are, we only started sending weapons after the EU had decided to do so. The government made an about turn 24 hours after they had decided not to send weapons for reasons of caution and prudence. Uh, they decided to follow the EU 
And uh, I think that was a political necessity. I mean, when Switzerland is sending weapons to, as a NATO country, you kind of know that it's time to step up. On a personal note, I may add that I wrote an op-ed the day after this started and said that we should think through whether we wanted to send weapons or not, because although it would be a very good thing to strengthen Ukrainian resistance and send a message uh, against the aggressor, it would also mean that Ukraine would uh, be encouraged and we should stand by that encouragement and not so that it wouldn't be a fair weather, fair weather friend thing to do. And I was inundated with my with mails from people I did not know or people I'd met 20 or 30 years ago saying, this is really disappointing and how can you? And We must stand up and uh, long live Ukraine and the whole caboodle. I, I haven't experienced that, for, that before. So um, there's a groundswell in the country on behalf of Ukraine, which I find to be very interesting indeed. And then as, as regards Norway, you do have a land border with Russia. Uh, we have a 196 kilometer long land border in the north, and it used to be the only place where NATO and Russia squared off direct. But that's not the case anymore, because with Russian forces in Belarus, it also means that, uh, that there is a direct confrontation along the so-called Suvalka Gap, stretching from Kaliningrad in the left and uh, along the Polish-Belarus border. So we're not alone in, in having that confrontation anymore, but we used to be. Does it give you any extra cause for concern? Or does that, that particular border look like the least of Russia's worries at the moment? At the moment, yes. But the job of a security analyst is not only to think through what happens tomorrow, it's also to think through the consequences a year down the line, and then also the accumulated consequences. That's important. What Norway has been trying to do has been to do deterrence through NATO, but also to, uh, like Denmark, to, to do certain self, to, to, to put the country under certain self restrictions. For example, we don't allow military maneuvers close to the border in East Finnmark, that is the part of the country closest to Russia. We stay off that. We haven't had troops stationed permanently on, on Norwegian soil, like the Danes, etc. These things now seem decidedly wobbly. And they've all sort of, particularly the sort of permanent presence has already been sort of undermined. And uh, again, there's the galvanization of Norwegian security policy behind NATO as a direct result of all this. Well, let's speak to Johanna Vorelma. Obviously, you're the country with the biggest challenge uh, with that long, long border with Russia. Well, certainly here in Finland, the war has caused, you can say, shockwaves across the country. Um, you mentioned Finland has a long border with Russia, 1,340 kilometers. Most of Finns know that, that figure by heart. Um, the history has been very, there has been a lot of aggression from, from Russia over the centuries. There have been several occasions, most recently during the Second World War, when the Soviet Union launched a war, actually very similar to what we see now in Ukraine. And there's been a lot of comparison between the winter war and, and this attack. And there are certainly some similarities, also, also differences. During the Cold War, as you mentioned, Finland was forced, you can say, to choose the policy of neutrality. It was a success story in many ways compared to other neighbours of Russia that lost their sovereignty. Uh, but what 
the, the price Finland paid was what is called Finlandization, meaning Finland had to compromise on its sovereignty, had to let the Soviet Union to implicitly and also explicitly influence its politics and society before Russia's attack. There were four principles that really guided Finland's foreign and security policy. First of all, close cooperation with with Finland's Western partners, including NATO, other Nordic countries. Finland is not a member of NATO. Secondly, credible defense capabilities, including general conscription. Thirdly, active involvement in multilateral arrangements such as the UN, other international organizations, and fourthly, good relations with Russia. And now clearly the fourth principle, good relations with Russia, this is out of question. There's really, it's very difficult to see that there there would be a return for a long time, which actually means that Finland now needs to really rethink its, its basic principles. And currently, I mean, there has been a significant impact on the public opinion, also policy discussions. Finns have really sort of, you can say, historically turned actually in favor of joining NATO. This has been a major shift in in the polls. Uh, There was one poll uh, just about two, three weeks before before the war started, and then another one two weeks later, and there had been a massive shift in uh, in favor of of NATO. So now, uh, this is something that I mean, the public opinion is is uh, is now looking actually similar to to Sweden. The Westminster administration has been criticised for its apparent reluctance to put sanctions in place, put pressure on Putin. And we can speculate as to whether the Tory party's close links with Russian oligarchs has got anything to do with that. While Westminster was still dragging its feet, there was a flurry of excitement across Scottish Twitter when we realised that a Russian tanker was steaming its way towards Flotta Harbour on Orkney, where it was going to load up with crude oil. A bit of an outcry ensued. The initial response from the harbour was that they weren't able to do anything without Westminster's approval, which is a sad state of affairs. Questions were soon being raised at Holyrood. To ask the Scottish Government what discussions it has had with the UK Government about using the sanctions regime to prevent Russian government-owned tankers entering ports in the UK, including in Orkney. Cabinet Secretary Michael Matheson. The unprovoked aggression by the Russian Government against a sovereign democratic state is wholly unacceptable and we are committed to ensuring appropriate measures are taken to ensure that any support, however indirect, for Russia's unjust war is prevented. The First Minister met with the Secretary of State for Transport, Grant Shapps, on Sunday evening to discuss concerns about the Russian-owned oil tanker NS Champion, which at that time was heading towards Orkney to pick up a cargo of crude oil at the Flotta terminal. In line with the agreement that all efforts should be made to stop the tanker docking, Scottish Government officials have been working collaboratively with a range of stakeholders, including officials at the Department for Transport and the Joint Maritime Security Centre to pursue all options. More generally, we have been working collaboratively with stakeholders to make clear that vessels owned, controlled, chartered or operated by individuals or companies connected to Russia are not welcome in Scottish ports or to undertake business here at this time. Members will wish to be aware 
than an amendment to the UK sanctions regime prohibiting the entry of vessels connected to Russia to UK ports, the registration of such vessels in the UK and allowing for the detention of such vessels already here in certain circumstances enters into force at 1500 hours today. The Scottish Government will continue to work closely with the UK Government to maximise the effectiveness of this regime, share intelligence and prevent unacceptable Russian vessels and business activity here. Liam MacArthur. Uh, could I thank the Cabinet Secretary for that response and for his engagement on this issue over the, the weekend. Cancelling the contract with Sovcon Flot and preventing NS Champion berthing at the Flotta Oil Terminal in my constituency was the right thing to do. It is also a victory for the people of Orkney who have been steadfast in their determination to stand shoulder to shoulder with the people of Ukraine. Through their defiance, major oil companies have had to act. As a result, money that would have flowed into supporting Putin's bloodthirsty regime has been stopped. Preventing Russian vessels entering UK ports announced by Grant Shapps yesterday is in keeping with the spirit of the sanctions regime. Rhoda Grant. Thank you, Thank you Presiding Officer. I understand there was a Russian tanker in Shetland as well last week, much to the consternation of the community there. And there was also a Russian transporter vessel anchored in Broad Bay in Lewis for a number of days. I understand it has just left this morning. What restrictions can be placed on Russian vessels entering Scottish water and anchoring there, if not berthing at a harbour? Cabinet Secretary. Officer, I recognise the concerns which the member is raising, but the member will also recognise that under international law there is a right of passage for vessels going through international waters, including Scottish waters, and they have a right to passage in doing so. But what I can assure the member is that what we want to do is to ensure that Russian-owned interests that would seek to profit from bringing vessels into Scottish ports and harbours are unable to do so. And that is exactly what the new regulations will ensure cannot happen from here on in. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. And while we're talking about Scotland's ports, we regularly bemoan the fact that there are no direct routes between Scotland and Europe, for example. But the situation with regard to Scotland's ports is actually a lot worse than we think it is. Pensioners for Indy recently had a discussion with Professor Alf Baird, who's an expert on all things maritime. Here's a little clip from the talk that he gave. I'm sure this will whet your appetite to want to hear the whole talk. And it's going to be the subject of our next Mibby's Eye show, which will be broadcast on the 19th of April on Independence Live's YouTube channel. And there will, of course, be a podcast version as well. In the meantime, prepare to be enraged. The Ports Act in 1991 essentially allowed trust ports to bring forward privatisation schemes. And very quickly, Forth, Clyde and Tay were privatised. Forth uh, subsequently floated on the London stock market. Clyde Port uh, bought by a management buyout team who quickly became multi-millionaires and, and then sold on the port to the next owner. And then subsequently the port was uh, bought, acquired by Peel Ports of Liverpool, or, or rather Channel Islands uh, ownership. Uh, so it's an offshore equity fund. So essentially these ports became owned by offshore private equity funds. The problem is that the ports are split into three functions uh, in terms of the legality of them. Uh, the first is they are landowners. The second aspect 
is they are operators of all the activities within the port. And the third aspect is they are regulators, regulators of the navigation, regulators of new port developments, and the ability, they have the ability to tax shipping and trade. So every ton of trade and every ton of ship coming into the fourth Clyde of Tay can be taxed. Uh, and they are taxed by, at the moment, offshore private equity funds that own them. So it means that all the money earned through this taxation on shipping and trade is leaked out of the economy. And just to give you some idea of the kind of losses involved in that, where, where you do have municipal owned ports in Scotland uh, are at Shetland and Orkney. Uh, Sullen Vaux is the big oil terminal in Shetland, owned by BP, but it's regulated by the council. And in Orkney, the Sullen Vaux oil terminal is regulated by the Port Authority, which is a department also of the council in Orkney. And these are the two councils that have been able to build up massive oil, uh, oil fund reserves, if you like. And it's basically from the ability to tax tankers. Alternatively, on the 4th and Clyde, the oil tankers and other ships, all the taxes levied on these ships has simply been extracted out of Scotland. And therefore, the local communities have not gained access to that at all, one single bit. And in the case of Hound Point on the 4th, that is, is probably into the billions of pounds. These three areas, landowner, operator and regulator, globally, the normal model for the private sector is to be the operator. And this involves the government still retaining land, the port land as owner, and regulator. So government can regulate and own the port land, but lease it out to private operators. That means government on the continent, for example, and globally this model is the norm, they retain control over port planning, port development, port investment, and they control and regulate the activities of the private operators. They can even impose price restrictions and, and also guarantees on freight volumes and tonnages going through ports so that the private operator has to deliver. Now, we don't operate that model, but that's the model which is the most common globally. A country doesn't really need to sell off its port land in, in totality and also give away its regulatory powers to offshore private equity funds to get an efficient system. In fact, the end result is you don't get an efficient system. You get an abusive monopoly power that simply exploits that monopoly no end. It really brings it down to political ideology, uh, which we, we see in the UK, this extreme model of port privatization, which sold off the port land, the port regulatory powers, as well as the, the utility function, the port operations. The global model is, is totally different to that. So the, the, the Continentals view this, uh, the British approach to port policy, port privatization, as a unique Anglo-Saxon model which outsources the regulation, the ownership, and the operation of ports to offshore private equity funds, as we see today. Whereas the continental approach is what they call the Latin model. So it means the council, the city, the state, whether it's Rotterdam, uh, Hamburg, wherever, uh, they control the port. Uh, they control the planning of it and the development of it, the regulation of it, and the operations, as far as the private sector are concerned, are regulated by the government. The continental or global model is really the government's put in place the poor infrastructure and the, uh, the private sector put in place the superstructure, which is the cranes, the sheds, the systems to run the port and manage the ships. But the port authority has an ongoing function to control safety, navigation uh, and economic efficiency 
if you like, so that uh, private actors don't intercept too much of the economic rents. Bear in mind that uh, ports can make an, or break an entire country's economy. And where we give away our ports to the private equity funds offshore, they can completely destroy our economy uh, through that mechanism. And that's also why by all other countries outside the UK, even the United States, uh, don't adopt this model. The, the ports are regarded as utilities, but they're also regarded as strategic uh, for the economic uh, sustenance of the entire country, uh, for the import and export of everything, uh, but also for defence and other purposes. So are you raging yet? I can guarantee you will be by the time you've heard the rest of this discussion. And just as a reminder, that will be available from the 19th of April on our YouTube and our podcast channels. So you might be feeling a little bit depressed after all that, but let's put things back in perspective and let's try and end on a positive note with our last two contributions. First of all, we have a very practical little guide from Commonweal on how to start a new country. This actually summarises in seven minutes uh, their whole book. (laughs) If you haven't read the book, then you'll be able to get a copy at the website, which is commonweal.scot. If Scotland decides to be independent, how would we start a new country? Well, 18 months before a referendum, we should start recruiting an expert team to lead the work. With about a year to go, we should publish the full plans for independence and hold a constitution convention to prepare an interim constitution. These are what should be put to the public in a vote. With six months to go, we should publish a full implementation plan to explain how all the work will get done. Then, of course, we need to win the support of the people of Scotland in a referendum. Setting up an independent Scotland will take three years, so we must begin immediately. First, we should seek legal personality, which simply means Scotland could begin entering into international negotiations and agreements. There must be transition plans which ensure that everyday government keeps functioning with Holyrood and Westminster continuing their current roles over the three years. Then we should set up a national commission to do all the actual work of creating systems and institutions and negotiating on Scotland's behalf. It will employ the staff who will do the work and must have very strong project management procedures and it must be able to borrow to finance all the work. The Commission's first job should be to set up the digital currency that banks use to create bank accounts. And since negotiations with the rest of the UK should begin within six months, it must start early to develop a negotiating strategy. Another early task is to begin the work with updating all of Scotland's public sector IT systems and building any new ones we'll need. This is the time to begin a big process of national participation so that everyone in Scotland has a chance to be involved in writing the final constitution. This will take two years. A number of big jobs which will take time should also start now, like building a Scottish Defence Force, new tax and social security systems and beginning to set up a borders and customs agency. Six months in, it is time to start negotiations with the rest of the UK and also start initial talks with international organisations like the United Nations. Getting towards the end of the first transition year, 
the National Commission will be working with the banks to help them start set up customer accounts in a new Scottish currency and also beginning to create a central bank and creating a new digital payment system. It is time to start setting up new government departments and expanding existing ones to take on the new responsibilities. A foreign office is a priority as it must start setting up a consular network around the world. Before the end of the first transition year, we will need to hold a political conference to involve all the parties to come to agreement on a number of issues which require decisions. By the start of the second transition year, banks will begin offering bank accounts in pound Scots, so as many of Scotland's taxes as possible should be payable in the new currency. And the central bank should now be building up the nation's foreign currency reserves. This is the time to start transferring the energy system to Scottish control by setting up an organisation to manage the grid and a regulator to protect the interests of customers. The early part of the second transition year is also when we should start setting up a national broadcaster, a media regulator, and to start to negotiate a commercial contract with the BBC to get access to its programming. By this point, we should already be in discussions with EFTA and the EU on trade arrangements, though proper negotiations on EU membership couldn't begin until we were fully independent. Later in the year, it should gradually become compulsory to pay taxes in the new currency. It's also the time to start putting in place a humane immigration system. By the midpoint of year two, we need to start separating the civil service to create a wholly Scottish service and to start recruiting the many new staff needed. There are some statutory regulatory bodies we also need to set up at this time. Later in the year, we need to commission the new banknotes and coins and begin updating vending machines to accept them. We should also be commissioning Scottish passports. While final border arrangements will depend on negotiations, it is time to start building the technical infrastructure which will help us manage our border but make it effortless to cross. Getting towards the end of the second year, the Foreign Office will have been set up and it should start to look at all the UK's international treaties to see which one Scotland wishes to stay a signatory to. By the start of the last transition year, we should aim to have completed the 18 months of negotiation with the rest of the UK. Much of the rest of the year is about finishing the many work strands that are underway. The constitution writing process should be nearly finished by now, so a new proposed constitution must be drafted. By the middle of the year, all the new systems, including the border arrangements, should be in place and should shadow the UK systems they will replace to enable troubleshooting. With a few months to go before Independence Day, the new constitution should then be agreed in a referendum. This might be an opportunity to resolve some other controversial issues, like who should be head of state and whether we rejoin the EU. With three months to go, almost everything should be more or less complete. It will be mandatory to pay all taxes in the new currency, and the process of issuing banknotes and coins will begin. By now, we'll know our share of any debts that we've agreed to pay to the rest of the UK, and how much the National Commission has borrowed to complete all the work. 
these sums should be added together and then refinanced to form Scotland's national debt. And then, well that's it. It's Independence Day. It's time to celebrate taking our place on the world stage, secure in the knowledge that we've done the best possible job of building a new country for all of Scotland's people. And finally, to celebrate International Women's Day, there was a wonderfully positive debate in Holyrood, full of great contributions. My favourite by a country mile was Maggie Chapman, who gave a speech that was eloquent, lyrical, uplifting, a pleasure to listen to. So that's what we're going to finish with this month. I want to apologise to all the women I have called beautiful before I've called them intelligent or brave. I am sorry I made it sound as though something as simple as what you are born with is all you have to be proud of when you have broken mountains with your wit. From now on, I will say things like, you are resilient or you are extraordinary, not because I don't think you're beautiful, but because I need you to know you are more than that. These are the words of Rupi Kaur, a Canadian poet, author, illustrator and photographer. I think her words capture something of the essence of this year's theme for International Women's Day. Bias, conscious and unconscious, is deeply rooted in our patriarchal society, and it is right that we come together and recognise that, and identify what we need to do to challenge and dismantle the structures and cultures that perpetuate inequality. I thank Michelle Thompson for lodging her motion and giving us this opportunity today. And I thank the organisations that have provided briefings and information about their work. And I, too, hold the women of Ukraine in the forefront of my mind. Bias is systemic and deeply ingrained in each of us. It requires active thought to challenge and break down. And one bias can be compounded by another. Intersections of difference make for a complex landscape of oppressions and inequalities. We only have to look at pandemic statistics, how older women were more likely to be furloughed than younger women and men how women of colour were more likely than white women to face increased isolation, discrimination and abuse during lockdown. And uh, as we heard so eloquently in the Equalities, Human Rights and Civil Justice Committee this week. And more broadly, how disabled and poorer women suffer more in times of war than others. Intersectionality matters and biases are not fixed. That is at the core of my intersectional feminism the fight to tackle gender stereotyping and discrimination must recognise the multiple and overlapping impacts of other characteristics like race, disability, gender identity and so on. It is so abundantly clear to me that tackling inequalities wherever and whatever they are is good for everybody, good for women, good for girls, good for men. Each of us in this place each and every single one of us has a part to play in this collective struggle. And we must recognise that the struggles we fight here in Scotland are connected to the struggles being fought by women and girls all over the world, as we've heard so eloquently already this afternoon. And so perhaps especially poignantly today, I want to end as I started with the words of a woman of colour, Roxane Gay, academic and writer, who challenges us all. Women of colour... Queer women and transgender women need to be better included in the feminist project. Women from these groups have been shamefully abandoned by capital F feminism time and again. This is a hard, 
painful truth. This is where a lot of people run into resisting feminism, trying to create distance between the movement and where they stand. But feminism's failings do not mean we should eschew feminism entirely. People do terrible things all the time, but we do not regularly disown our humanity. We disavow the terrible things. So we should disavow the failures of feminism without disavowing its many successes and how far we have come. Because we have come far, but the road is long ahead of us. That's all the bits and pieces we've got for you this month. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next month.